when you are resettled here, the, the United States sends you a bill of all the expenses that you went through by bringing you here. <laughs> so that is part of the story nobody ever talks about. Welcome to What We Will Abide, episode 55. This is chapter 4 of Waveland, a series of interviews I've done with immigrants to America. In this episode, I speak with Mustafa Noor, originally from Somalia, now a resident of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and owner and proprietor of Bridge Experience and the restaurant Zolbo, X-U-L-B-O, which resides on top of Telus 360 in the roof garden, right next to Tacos del Sol. I've mentioned it many times, but it seems necessary to repeat that Lancaster remains a place with its arms wide open to immigrants and refugees, as it has been for some three or four hundred years. Per capita, it houses the largest number of refugees in the entire country. And though our local congressman seems to ally himself with someone who is virulently anti-immigrant with talk about shooting at legs and snakes and alligators in moats, the city itself remains wholly committed to resettling immigrants here in the city. Mustafa is one of those immigrants who is now seeking to celebrate the experience of immigrants in America and share it with those of us who are less familiar with that journey. Uh, my name is Mustafa Noor. Um, I'm originally from Somalia. I was born and raised in Mogadishu, which is the capital of Somalia. I have seven, I have seven siblings. Um, I have three brothers and four sisters. And uh, I am right now living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for the last four years. Uh, my story and my life starts in Somalia, which was a very uh, war-torn country uh, ever since the 90s because the, the country decided to go to war with each other based on clans who are trying to get a political control. So yeah, I was born after the war. Um, I don't remember Somalia before the, before the war. Okay. I don't know what it looked like. I, I've seen photos, I've heard stories, but I was born right after the war, like two years into the war, that, that's when I was born. But yeah, I remember being a very happy child, even though despite being in a country that's uh, fallen apart, uh, my father did a very good job of at least protecting my family from the day-to-day war influence and activities. I grew up moving around from a city to city, but I also grew up with some sense of stability in the sense that I, my father had a couple of businesses. One of his businesses that he owned was an ice cream shop, and I and my brothers would help work with him on the ice cream shop. Um, I had one job. And my job description was to come up with ice cream flavors every few months. I think that a lot of Americans probably have not the greatest idea, or at least they're misinformed about Somalia. Yeah. You said, you know, war-torn country, and I think that a lot of Americans probably, that's what they think of, the first thing they think of when they think of Somalia, mm-hmm. as just war-torn, you know, terrorism and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. But that's not... All there is. No, there's more to make. There's more to. I, I just think that you should maybe tell people a little bit about like what yeah. it's actually like to live in Somalia. It's, for that. Uh, it's it was a very 
happy times to live in Somalia. Uh, growing up as a child, you also you also uh, don't know anything different than that. So that somehow becomes your normal, mm-hmm. and your normal becomes okay and exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Somalia right now is is going through. Ever since I moved out of Somalia, has gone through different shifts and changes. And I can tell you, when I tell many people, is that this the war and the terrorist uh, terroristic uh, image of Somalia is just like minute compared to the all the wonderful and beautiful things people experience. Uh, there's close to 10 million people who live in a country who are all somehow there despite what's happening there. Why do you think people are so misinformed and why do they think they have such a... Why do they paint Somalia with such a wide brush? I think I think it, it all comes about feeling uh, okay with how they, why they feel like some people from other countries should not be coming here or uh-huh. should not be welcome here. So to feel okay about that, you have to make sure that the country is painted in a negative um, way. Uh, the media is, has a big influence in this in the sense that portraying a whole country or a whole community as people who are inherently evil or mm-hmm. bad or or or, or or weak, a lack of uh, people who are not exposed to those stories or those people or those cultures uh, also adds to the fact that people are, 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 are okay to rush to those conclusions about, oh, this is a very bad country, this is bad people. It's somehow the media, but the media betrayal, the society in itself trying to justify why they should feel bad about people coming from these countries somehow convince themselves right. that, yeah. So, and what role do you think that like media portrayal of Islam and Muslims plays in that whole story? It's a big part of the problem. It's not the only problem, but it's a big part of the problem because if you have a microphone on a, a, or, or, an, or a platform where people will listen to you, whether it's one person or 10 million people, you have a responsibility to be honest and truthful and share tr- stories. But when you switch those stories and, uh, and all of a sudden betray countries for, that have a particular faith um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an inherently evil communities, uh, you, you're misrepresenting, you're creating a problem, you're not part of a solution, creating separation uh, and disconnect within populations so yeah the media will be huge impact of it and i think part of it also then comes down to society being comfortable with not educating themselves not looking for other sources of information or not even just uh fact checking or just making sure that hey my neighbor across the street is from this this country and, and this is not their truth but you did leave yeah. So yeah, we left some. We left Somalia after after the war and the, the whole activities. Unfortunately, it took my father's life, and we had to flee for our life. And then we ended up in a refugee camp in Kenya. That's where I would have spent uh, almost close to a decade living in a refugee camp um, from Somalia to Kenya. And uh, a lot of people say, "What? So what? Is, what is this refugee camp like?" Um, there's many ways to describe it. <laughs> um, the the best way to describe it is it's a, it's a place where uh, it's a small place where there's overpopulation of people who are all vulnerable or fleeing some some sort of threat. Uh, so if you wanted to see humanities at its most vulnerable stage, I think visiting a refugee camp will give you that image. Well, so describe daily life in a um, refugee camp in, in Kenya. There's not much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you live in this vacuum of time where mm-hmm. you're, you're not doing anything much. Um, there's school available, but it's only available for a small percentage of the refugee population. 
for the first two years, I didn't do anything, just wake up, wait the day to end, and then go back because you're not allowed to leave the refugee camp into the other country, other cities of the the host nation. Uh, there's no jobs available. Uh, you know, you cannot work. You cannot go back to your country. You're just going through a process of of uncertainty and just stillness and just waiting. But yeah, eventually I started getting into selling water. So mm-hmm. I discovered that I used to I could, I could sell water on the streets. So I used to sell water on the streets uh, to uh, volunteers and aid workers from other countries. Where'd you get the supply of water? So there's one guy who had one water supply, and people would usually go to him to to buy the water. Then I and then I discovered that people actually it's a long walk to, for people to get to him all the time. So I started just taking water and selling it on the streets. So you don't have to walk all the way to the shop. So is that the origin of your entrepreneurship right there? I think that was the origin (laughs) of the entrepreneurship. It's just that spark of, hey, there's other ways of solving this problem. Right. And and that's where I would have met some guy who was a volunteer who was visiting for internship in the refugee camp from America. And um, he hadn't speak in English. I didn't know any English. So he had an interpreter and he bought some of my water and he said, He's gonna open an English class, and uh, I can come to, to to learn English from him. And I, I I said I don't have time to learn English from him because um, you know I need to sell my water. <laughs> he secretly started buying my water off like when it reaches noon, and then like the last hour I will have nothing to do, so I'll start I'll attend this English class. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's that's how I started learning English. So you began to become a businessman selling water, and then you learned English, and then you thought, okay, let's put those two together and become a businessman in America. Like, what, what was the next step? <laughs> so the next step was uh, when you are going through, uh, when you're in a refugee camp, the United Nations looks at your family's case and see if your country or whatever you're fleeing is safe enough for you to go back. Okay. If that's not the case, then they 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 uh, recommend your family for a settlement into another country. Uh, because there is the camp is considered a temporary stay. It's not so you're not supposed to start life there and live in there. It's a temporary stay to determine whether you should go back to uh, your country if it's safe enough, or whether you're sub- you're allowed to be resettled here. So yeah, then that's when the United United Nations has recommended my family for resettlement, and then the based on that resettlement recommendation, the United States accepted my family. To, for us to come here and start life all over here. What year was that? 2000, 2000 and I would say 2005. And then when you got accepted by the United States, then you start the process of uh, resettlement here. So you go through the interviews, the the background checks. Talk about what that process is like because I don't think that people really understand. So when, when people are recommended for resettlement, a lot of people always pray that the United States doesn't select them. Doesn't. Doesn't. Because it's a very long, it's a very long and uh, arduous process. It takes the longest out of any, all the countries. There's more steps involved. There's harder background checks. So the United States does this process, I guess, of making sure that people are perfect. <laughs> so yeah, you go, so you, you, you conduct an interview with the United States, um, uh, somebody from the home, Homeland Security, and then you conduct another background check, an interview, another interview. If you are under 18, mm-hmm. if you are a boy, mm-hmm. if you have a Muslim name, everything. There's all these different layers that make your case harder. And that's why it takes such a long time. But we didn't mind going through the process, except it was very inhumane in, in some aspect of it. I had lost my father um, 
and I unfortunately witnessed his death and some of those details they make you go through multiple times in details they they use techniques such as like uh, close your eyes and tell me what's happening at each section it's a point why so just they can verify your your accuracy and you stay consistent with your story you finally get uh, recommended um, when you pass all those steps you get recommended uh, to to the resettling communities so then one of those resettling communi- communities uh, based on the availability of resources or availability of rental will accept you so my family got accepted by the Churchill service of Lancaster Pennsylvania and then we found out that we came in here three weeks before we came and you had never heard of Lancaster Pennsylvania I, I didn't even know Pennsylvania was a state um, <laughs> some of the Somali friends I had I had that went before me would have gone to Ohio or Minnesota or Bigger states that are very urban, but I didn't know Pennsylvania existed. So the first time I heard it, was, I didn't have any friends or anybody I knew who has ever came here. So it was you and was me and my uh, my seven siblings okay. and my mom. Okay, so nine of us. And you got here. You said two thousand seven. No, in America. No, we got this all in America in two thousand fourteen. So it was a seven or eight year process. Yeah. That is a very long time. It's a very long time. It's considered short based on the, the average time it takes other refugees. The average number right now is about 17 and a half years to go through the process. I mean, when you were talking about living in a refugee camp and how it's temporary and supposed to be temporary, my thinking was about, like, you know, refugee camps, for example, um, uh, in the Western Sahara, where I know that people have been living for decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming, mm-hmm. going from a temporary to a very... To per- a new life. To a new permanent... And certainly this is the case with, you know, Palestinians yeah. who left what became the state of Israel in the mm-hmm. 1940s. Yeah. And they're living in refugee camps, which became cities yeah. um, in Palestine and Israel and Lebanon. And continue having children and the children and so are growing up in a refugee camp and they don't know anything else. So right. Know. And when you say 17 years being the average for people to get resettled, for many people that's like you know their entire childhood yeah. and it's all they know. Yeah. And then to even leave that would be like leaving a home, for example, yeah. if had they been born in a refugee camp. Yeah, or even had, if you had you gone there for when you were young and yeah. spent a long time there. So... I just think it's important that people hear that because yeah. I think they hear about refugees and they get nervous and they think like these are people who are invading our country yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like I think that they had any inkling of what people went through, yeah, and what yeah. their lives were like. It's brutal condition. It's uh, there's high uh, mental health issues happening. Right, people going through trauma and uh, and not. And living in a place where there there's no help us, yeah. So it's it's not a place you should live. Uh, like I said, it's it's humanity as most at the most vulnerable mm-hmm. stage. Um, and uh, a lot of times I say refugees get displaced or resettled twice. The first time is when they leave their home and they come to the refugee camp and they somehow find some sort of new normal, mm-hmm. and then they get resettled from that to. A new place, so now this, you're taking the journey all over again. So it's such a a lot of a lot of pressure and stress on on on, on a, an interruption on on people's lives. If someone lost a relative, a loved one, a parent here, for example, as an American, right? Mm-hmm. There's all this. 
outpouring of support and you have mental health resources that you're, you know, if you needed it and things yeah. like that. Um, you, I'm guessing, didn't. No. Right. So your father dies and then it's like, okay, well, you're yeah. on your own. And then yeah. they pick you up and move you into this refugee camp. There's not like a counselor. There's you know, nothing. Or, no. or, you know, somebody. No, to... there's, a, there's a high suicide rate in the refugee camp. Mm-hmm. People who kind of either deal with some problems or people who are who are just there for a long time and they start losing hope of what's going to happen with their life. Right. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very sad stage. So how did you maintain hope? I think, I think, and this is, and this is what makes me right now very sad for the refugees who are still in the camp, or at least right now in America, if they, if they, if they have been chosen to be resettled by the United States. Mm-hmm. So, in, as a refugee person in the camp, you have nothing to be hopeful about as far as like everything is not looking great. But there's one thing that keeps you excited and makes you look forward to another day. It's the idea of seeing, being resettled somewhere else and having the opportunity of starting life all over. So that keeps you excited. It's like, okay, okay, this is gonna, it's gonna be another year, but I'm gonna start my life all over again. Um, but right now what's happening is that that hope is starting to being taken away from the refugees who have been there for 10 years or 20 years because right now they're being told you cannot come or you're not welcome to come so it just makes me come it just i cannot imagine being in a refugee camp and waiting for almost a decade and and with the only thing that would kept kept me hopeful being the idea i can start my life all over again and all of a sudden that being taken away from mm-hmm. me might sound ignorant here for a second, but is Somalia on the list of countries that were part of the Muslim, the so-called Muslim ban? Yeah, it was. I mean, the the ban apparently expired now, but still in effect, uh, unofficially. In the refugee camp, everything has a limit of an expiration date. So your background check expires after every six months. Your medical check expires after every six months. So any interruption to the process will make you go back a year or two years uh, to restart the same process again. It's almost as if they do not want to accept people. No. So it, it you can say you want people, but when you cause interruption within the flow of the process, it's going to delay people at least another two or three years. Right now, I have I know so many families who are supposed to come to Lancaster. Mm-hmm. They were scheduled to come to Lancaster, but they're not going to come until 2021 now or until 2020. Yeah, so because because of that little shift of change, it just takes a lot of things back. How do you get acclimated? How do you find a job? How do you find a home? How do you get started? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you when you get chosen by a settlement agency like like social service, they at least find you an apartment before you come here. Mm-hmm. So when you come here, you have at least an apartment that they they have find you it's going to be under your name and you take you can take the lease over whether you whether you like that apartment or you don't like it it's up to you uh but but the first initial thing that happens to every refugee when they comes is the, the it's it's just culture shock overload uh, my family had a special um entry uh, in the sense that we came on halloween day which is not something a lot of refugees or even myself didn't know about. So my first day in America was Halloween day. Um, that's my first um, 
time seeing people dressed up in all the costumes and whatnot. Uh, and uh, and that 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 was my first impression about America is people wear costumes <laughs> all the time. No, no, no. People wear ghost costumes. Yeah, all the time. All the time. All the time. So yeah, but but besides that initial um, culture shock, uh, you you have this an amazing feeling of feeling peace for the mm. first time in a long long time. You you're it's so quiet that you're like okay something is weird here but but it makes you feel peaceful and the idea that you have right now okay i'll start my life all over again uh so yeah um i child service again helps you at least uh, apply to local opening opening jobs so because you're supposed to work right away and the reason why you're supposed to work right away is because when you are resettled here then you the United States sends you a bill of all the expenses that you went through by bringing you here. <laughs> so that is part of the story nobody ever talks about. Nobody ever I, I did not. I did not know about that. So no. yeah, every refugee person pays back their travel expenses at least. Um, so thousands of dollars. Yeah, it was like twelve thousand dollars for my family because this. So the U.S. Us. government sends you a bill. Yep. So, so you're supposed to start working. That's what. To pay the U.S. government back. Yeah. What was your first job? My first job was uh, I used to I found this job in an in an Amish company, and I used to paint and install windows on a small garages and build on sheds that they built. Mm-hmm. That was my first ever job. And what I realized is that the refugee people when they came here they come with skills as far as talent and culture and stories and uh, cuisines that um, people travel to another country to have those experiences mm-hmm. with with these different cultures. But there's that wealth of culture resettling in our in our uh, backyard in our in our neighborhoods, and so what I did was um, I started realizing is that we could uh, either let that go to waste, or we could empower ourselves as being the refugee community and uh, use that part of our culture to connect with the local community. Because when you're first here, when you're new here. You come, there's a sense of isolation that comes with that. You don't know anybody. It's, you don't know the language, or you don't you don't look like everybody else. Mm. So, so I created a, a platform called. I just had a business idea. I, I went to Assets, which is a local uh, business accelerator. Mm-hmm. I said I have this idea of I want to create something that's going to connect the community using what they already have, which is their culture, their story, their cuisine. And I went through a three months period of. Coming up with a business plan, developing a business plan, coming up with a name, learning all these thing, different things. All I knew is that I had a core idea, and that's what I wanted to do. So yeah, that led to me creating uh, on the platform called Bridge. It's an online platform where local refugee families list themselves as a host that they want to host you to introduce you to their culture, to their story, to their music, to their food, on different on different things. And they get paid for it. So mm. you will spend an evening of learning about another culture by not leaving your home, uh, your own neighborhood. So it just started with me and my family. Um, and then, mm. But now there's about 24 families that host every weekend. Th- that led to a lot of people saying, hey, we had a great food here. Where can we buy that food again? And then now I own, now I open this new rooftop uh, restaurant. If you go to experiencebridge.com, mm-hmm. Um, you can see all the different families, all the different, all the different events that are happening locally. 
um, there's a contact page there. Mm -hmm. It will come directly to me if you have inquiries or if, if you have questions. Part of what, what I'm trying to do with Bridge is to, I, I guess the way it says in its award, is bridge the community and create harmony in the sense that the less we talk, the more people don't understand each other. Mm. But so I'm trying to create those conversations. How did you um, drum up interest in this? How did you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So what I realized that is because because we live in Lancaster, I've I've noticed that there's all these welcome signs in mm -hmm. people's homes. Right. Like you know, no matter where you're from, you're welcome. But then I will ask the same people like, so how many people have been inside of your house? And they were like, oh no, we just welcome refugees. We just don't know them. Right. So so the way I started is I just started with those people who already kind of a welcoming people I said hey well you're already welcoming people might as well have dinner and talk hear the story and then that led to spreading out and now we do a monthly dinner called bring your uncle to dinner where you, where you bring somebody who's feeling the exact opposite of that person somebody who's not pro-refugee mm. somebody who's who doesn't understand is the word I use <laughs> your, your racist uncle your racist uncle <laughs> So yeah, we bring that person to dinner and then they at least have an opportunity to learn and ask questions and have food and uh, hear stories of refugees. I love that. I think it's a fabulous, brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, how's it going? It's going well. It's it's one of the most intense events I do every month. I can because, imagine. Because I don't know who's there. Right. And we always get very interesting questions. I'm sure. <laughs> um, such as? Uh, such as, uh, like, like, when are you going back to your country or... or, or why do you hate this country? Or there's so many different things that people know, or there's all these conspiracies that I don't know what they picked up on. But at least I know when they come there, they ha they're in a space where they can ask these questions, and nobody's gonna say you're crazy. Right. So yeah, we, they're always sold out. Uh, we've done a fourth one right now. Uh, the reason why they are very effective is because we use people who are in the same circle. Uh, a friend, a mother and her daughter, or a friend and her, ca and, and her cousin who are both on the opposite ends of this refugee story, and they both come to the dinner. So it's so everybody has that sense of okay, I know I have a cousin or a friend of mine here. It's it's one of the best ways I've ever heard of in order to teach people by means of telling stories. Mm -hmm, yeah. But to actually bring somebody into the into somebody's house and have them tell stories. And show them who you truly are as a human being. Like you can't walk out of that experience thinking I hate that person yeah. because you yeah. just had my a good father, experience with them. My father, my father used to say something, and I used always use it. He said, he said, he said it's going to be very difficult to hate somebody if you know their story. Right. So if you want to hate somebody, don't don't hear this story because with with all these stories, you see a lot of similarities. Uh, families trying to make ends meet children who are trying to uh, pursue uh, education so we're, we're all trying to do the same thing in this world where we're just trying to live in peace and uh, fulfill something in, in different parts of the world and once you start relating to all the different parts of the world um, it makes people it makes you more empathetic so what you're doing on a small scale is you're actually changing people's minds yeah about the way people who are different from them live, yeah. so that they think differently, and then the, and then they take that lesson to their own families and their own friends. Exactly, that's the hope, right? Exactly. Um, I'm just trying to retell a story that has been told many times. That's the only way to do it. Yeah.
it's the only way to do it. Yeah. Uh, so then tell me about the restaurant upstairs. Yeah, so the restaurant upstairs right now, it's going well. Um, every Friday, we have a new family come in and bring their menu. Uh, this is from different parts of the world. And then we have a, we have a consistent uh, menu that's, that has a, a lot of Somali items. And we have a lot of art as far as our how, how we used to decorate our space. So there's a lot of stories and messages and facts and figures and and different maps within our sun. So it's a way to tell, introduce people to a larger uh, issue. And then there's the food. A, yeah, there's the food <laughs> in a very casual, casual setting. Right. My mom cooks. She enjoys cooking because a lot of times what happens is in in the refugee journey, uh, and when you come to America, the roles get switched. Mm. The parents are no longer the provider. The, the providers, mm-hmm. the children are more active than the providers. So this is this is my this is one of the ways I try to give her back that provider role. That hey, I'm making food and I'm earning an income for my. For my children, so yeah, and and you see that in all the different women that come up here and work. And people are, I think, flocking right to your restaurant. Yeah, it's 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 very popular. I am I'm excited about that part, and the, and I think uh, part of the excite the, the part of the excitement around the restaurant is people are right now realizing that food is a very good tool that will connect you to at least part of somebody's story. People have always connected over food. It's no a global one. language. So what's next? Um, what's next right now for us is that I am hoping to expand to Pittsburgh. I've started developing some relationships uh, with local refugees there and the local community members there. And I'm hoping to launch there, hopefully within the next month or the, the one after. Um, and then I'm hoping to take this idea of connecting people through sitting down, eating a meal together to all the different parts of the United States until it's no longer a thing that you have to book but something you normally do. So when is the restaurant open? When should people come by? Yeah, so we're open Tuesdays to Saturdays, uh, 12 p.m. to 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you also would like to have an in-home experience with all the different refugee families, you can go and book experiencebridge.com. We have families right now listed from nine con- from eight countries, from Syria to Bosnia to Iraq to Congo to Sudan. Who are hosting? Who are hosting every weekend? Wow! Um, so every weekend you can do anything, any any of those cultures that you that you love to join for dinner. How do you find people to host? Uh, I just started building relationships with with the local refugees, and um, it, it helped that I am at least multilingual. The most exciting thing that's going to happen right now in November for us is that I've discovered that the immigration or the or my People journeying from one part of the world to another part of the world seeking peace has happened in this region for a long time, mm-hmm. at least in Lancaster County. Mm-hmm. So in November we're gonna do an event that's pretty cool. We're gonna we're gonna have Amish and refugees host together and tell their stories of how they these communities ended up in Lancaster, indeed in two different times, but they had all came here for. Uh, because they were fleeing prosecution in different centuries, but different centuries. similar stories across time. Yeah, and just all have food. So yeah, it's going to be called uh, an evening with the Amish and the refugees. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tells you what it is. Yeah, you don't have to wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> and, like, you know, exactly. I think it's great because you're, it's people often say when I say that I live in Lancaster, like, oh, the Amish. I'm like, yeah, but it's so much more. But it is kind of a reputation or kind of a stigma that this. 
county has, people know that they're Amish here. So that's it's good to explore that. Like you're using, yeah. you're using that very well. Yeah. Can people find your restaurant, etc., on Facebook or other social yeah, media? Yeah, we, we are on Facebook, uh, Zolbo X U L B O uh, Bridge Food Stand. On Facebook, on Instagram, it's the same name. Um, and, and then if you wanna find uh, the platform, it's Experience Bridge uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. And the website is experiencebridge.com. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. And telling me your story. I am really grateful. Thank you so much for... And honored. And thank you for um, using your platform to share my story and uh, share many stories. I I think we are all part of the solution in different ways. Mustafa's food stand, Zolbo, is open on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 12 to 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays from 12 to 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. to late in the evening and from Sunday from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. It is, of course, located on the roof of TELUS 360. You can also go to experiencebridge.com to book a global cuisine experience right in the confines of your own home. There are dishes available from Somali culture, dishes from the Congo, Syria, Nepal, Iraq, and more. You can find both Zobo and Experience Bridge on Facebook and on Instagram. If you're looking for older episodes of What We Will Abide, including the previous three chapters of the Waveland series, you can also find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash what we will abide my thanks to mustafa for taking time out of his very busy day to chat with me and my thanks as always again to hannah bingman for the original music that you heard at the top and are listening to right now and though i don't always mention it i am always grateful to erica heilman for her inspiring podcast rumble strip her work and her words of encouragement continue to be a source of strength for me thank you for listening.